Blessed are you. Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and our offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Amen. Capitulo 23 del libro de Breshis. That was for our Sephardic Jews out there, so we can keep on track with us. Let's see here, chapter 23. Ah. Sarah's lifetime was 100 years, 20 years, and 7 years. The years of Sarah's life. Sarah died in Kiraba Arba, which is an Ebron in the land of Canaan, and Abraham came to utilize, eulogize Sarah and to bewail her. Abraham rose up from the presence of his dead and spoke to the children of Heth, saying, I am an alien and a resident among you. Grant me an estate for the burial site with you, that I may bury my dead from before me. And the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God in our midst. And the choicest of our burial places, bury your dead. All of us will not withhold this burial place from you from burying your dead. Then Abraham rose up and bowed down to the members of the council, to the children of Heth. He spoke to them, saying, If it is truly your will to bury my dead from before me, heed me and intercede for me with Ephron, the son of Zar. Let him grant me the cave of Machpelah, which is his, on the edge of his field, and let him grant it to me for its full price in your midst as an estate for a burial site. Now, Ephron was sitting in the midst of the children of Heth, and Ephraim the Hittite responded to Abraham in the hearing of the children of Eth, for all who come to the gate of his city, saying, No, my Lord, heed me. I have given you the field, and as for the cave that is in it, I've given it to you in view of the children of my people. Have I given it to you? Bury your dead. So Abraham bowed down before the members of the council. He spoke to Ephraim in the hearing of the members of the council, saying, Rather, if only you would heed me, I gave the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. And Ephraim replied to Abraham, saying, My Lord, heed me. Land worth 400 silver shekels between me and you. What is it? Bury your dead. So Abraham heeded Ephraim, and Abraham weighed out to Ephraim the price which he had mentioned in the hearing of the children of Hith, 400 silver shekels in negotiable currency. And Ephraim field, which was in Machpelah, facing Mamre, the field and the cave within it, and all the trees in the field within it, all its surrounding boundaries was confined, or confirmed, Slika, as Abraham's, as a purchase in the field of the children of Heth, among all who came to the gate of the city. And afterwards, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, facing Mamre, which is Hebrew, in the land of Canaan. Thus the field with its cave was confirmed, confirmed as Abraham's, as an estate for a burial site from the children of Heth. Interestingly, this, uh, as I said, begins the parasha of Chaye Sarah, but it actually begins talking about the deaths of Sarah. We ended last uh, week's reading with the near offering of Isaac, although according to um, the sages, Isaac was actually offered, although not in the, in the actual literal sense that you and I might expect. In other words, his blood was not spilt, nevertheless... His soul ascended to Shemayim and was sent right back down. And so in a, in a way, uh, according to the sages, Isaac was in fact offered again, but his blood wasn't spilt. That was a significant difference between him and Mashiach. As I like to point out from time to time when the opportunity presents itself, there is an idea, a false idea, that... The uh, Mashiach and his Talmudim, and later those who followed him, were anti-rabbinic. They were against the Pharisees, like the Pharisees were like the uh, Darth Vader and his stormtroopers. And uh, they were terrible, they're evil people, and they didn't want anything to do with them. And the, all that rabbinic stuff, all those rabbinic writings, all that Talmud, Midrash, Zohar, they considered it nonsense. They were sola scriptura. They were word of God only. Every single word of it they believed, and they didn't, they didn't do anything else. And then you come to the book of Hebrews, which everybody considers 
usually to be Scripture. And in the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 11, it actually says that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead, and in fact, God did in parable. Question becomes, what's it meaning when whoever wrote the letter, the letter to the Hebrews, whoever wrote that, when they said Abraham believed that God could resurrect his son, and in fact, and in fact, God did, according to parable, what are they talking about? They're talking about the parable in the Midrash Rabbah. So in the letter to the Hebrews, it confirms the validity of the Midrash Rabbah by saying that, in fact, he did raise him from the dead according to the parable. And along those same lines, I just want to point out that in our Basora reading, which Yared did so eloquently today, it says here, as they came down off of the mountain, which is uh, Mount... Uh, what's the name of the mountain? I forgot the name of the mountain. The big dome mountain in Israel. Anyway, it's right there by Megiddo in the Jezreel Valley. Um, it'll come to me later. But anyway, they went up that mountain. It's very, very, very tall mountain. It looks like a big, perfect dome when you see it from a distance. I've driven to the top of that mountain. It's very, uh, it's, uh, long, it takes a long while to get up there. Anyway, and then it's right there by the Jezreel Valley, right across the valley from Megiddo. No, it's not Masada. It's uh, Mount Tubal or something like that or... No, not Tubal. Uh, Tabor. Tadarabah. Mount Tabor. That's what it is. But I don't want to Tabor you with the story. Ha! <laughs> I'm sorry. So it says here, they were coming down the mountain, and they asked him. Now listen to this. This is an aside from what I'm going to talk about today, but it, again, the opportunity presents itself. They asked him, saying, how is it that the scholars, that's the rabbis, that's the oral tradition, the Talmud, Midrash Rabbah, how is it that the scholars say that Eliyahu will come first? Might we, everybody believes that, Right? Everybody believes, you're listening to me, maybe you're tuning in because you're sitting at home because you can't go out because of the plague. <laughs> so you're tuning in and you've, you believed your whole life that the Eliyahu must, that's Elijah, must come before Mashiach. Why do you believe that? Because the sages said it would happen. Those rabbis that you reject, the oral tradition, which you say is foolishness, they're the ones who told you that. That's why you believe it. So it says, how is it that they say this? And the reason they're asking Mashiach is because Mashiach is there. And as far as they know, Eliyahu has not yet come. But they haven't quite figured out that this is the first coming of the Mashiach, that this is Mashiach ben Yosef, because as far as the Talmudim are concerned, this is Mashiach ben David, and they're about to just whoop Rome. <laughs> so they're confused, but, but, uh, but the scholars say that Eliyahu is supposed to come first, but he hasn't yet come because they know that when Eliyahu comes, that's when Mashiach ben David comes. That's why we're still waiting for the literal Eliyahu to come first. Now, this question betrays a reality that the, the Talmudim believed the scholars. Otherwise, they would not have asked the question. How is it that the scholars say? They're asking the Mashiach. Why? Because as far as they're concerned, the scholars are right. So they're confused now. Other, if they didn't believe in the oral Torah, if they were anti-Pharisee, as everybody pretends that they are, they would not even, who would care what the scholars say? It would make no difference. But the fact that they asked the question means that the Talmudim believed the scholars. Now, a great theologian would say at this point, yes, they believed because they were so stupid. <laughs> but the Mashiach did not believe the scholars. Okay. If that were the case, then the next line should say something to the effect of, why are you listening to those people that don't know what they're talking about? 
Why are you listening to the oral tradition? Why are you listening to the rabbis? That's the teachings of men. Don't follow the teaching of men. Follow the scripture. Which, by the way, the scripture never says anything. The actual word of God, the Tanakh, never says anything about Elijah coming first. That's a problem, but we're going to go over that for a second. In fact, the scripture, the Tanakh, never says anything about an actual Mashiach. In fact, the scripture never says anything about actually verifying resurrection of the dead. So if you believe in word of God only, you've got a, a problem. Because you believe in resurrection of the dead, but I defy you. I'll pay you $1,000 tomorrow if you're able to tell me where in Scripture it says resurrection of the dead. Now you say, how can you say such a thing, Rabbi? Everybody knows the resurrection of the dead. No, this is why the Sadducees had their fight with the Pharisees. This is why the Sadducees said there was no resurrection of the dead, because they were word of God only. They were the original Lutherans. And the Pharisees said, no, there is resurrection of the dead. And they brought out all the oral tradition from Scripture to say that. But, they, but it wasn't clearly stated. It, it did not say, thus saith the Lord, there is a resurrection of the dead. It doesn't say that. So the, the, the Sadducees said, see, there's no resurrection of the dead. But you believe it, but you reject their oral tradition. That's problematic. So it says, he, and this is, but, but this is what Yeshua said. So they just asked him, what about the scholars who say that there's going to be an Eliyahu to come? If Yeshua was anti-rabbis, he should have just rebuked the whole premise of the question. But this is what he says. Listen to the answer. Yes, Elijah comes first. Oh, you missed it. You were sleeping. You were thinking about something else. They asked him, the scholars say that Elijah must come first. Now, let me, let me translate. The rabbis in the Talmud, hasn't, the Talmud hasn't been written down yet, but it, it exists. It just hasn't been written down. Just like the gospel existed before it was written down. You knew that, right? Oh, wait a minute. Uh, no, see, the gospels were all written down in the late first century. But they did exist in the beginning of the first century, right? Or did they exist only when they were written down? Let me ask you this question. This has nothing to do with what I plan to talk about today. Look, I got that many notes to talk about today. This has nothing to do with none of this. Let me ask you this question. How many, how many know what a, what a biography is? A biography is a story about somebody's life, right? At some point, normally when the person's dead, somebody will write a biography. Sometimes you write an autobiography, but you have to write that before you die, otherwise it couldn't be an autobiography. That, y'all will catch that in a second. Some of y'all will be like, oh, yeah, no, that makes sense. No. So a biography is written when somebody's dead, usually about their life, right? But if you take the theological idea that most people have, which is if it's not written down, it didn't happen, then you're writing a bio, bio, biography about somebody's life, but their life didn't actually happen until you wrote it down, which means you can't write the biography because it never existed. <laughs> this is why you come here. <laughs> because, see, the Bible was oral before it was written down. So if you say, I believe only in the written word, then you have a problem because it was spoken before it was written. You're rejecting yourself. See, the Gospels existed before they were written down. So anyway, Yeshua should have said, why are you paying attention to the Talmuds? Don't believe the Talmud. Believe word of God. That's what he should have said if everybody who rejects rabbinics is right. But this is, in fact, what the Mashiach said. He said, yes, Elijah must come first. In other words, at that moment, those four words, Yeshua was confirming, say confirming, confirming the oral tradition. With that, Your Honor, the defense rests. <laughs> now, let's get back to our story here about Sarah. Now, Sarah is 
This is about the death of Sarah. It gives us the age of Sarah. Incidentally, um, this, of course, leads to the purchase of the cave of Machpelah, which is where Adam and Eve were buried. And Abraham knew this. He knew this because when the two angels and Hashem showed up at his house and he ran out to get the uh, little calf to, to fix for dinner, the calf ran away from him and ended up going to the cave of Machpelah. And when he ran into the cave of Machpelah to get the calf, he smelled the fragrance, a sweet fragrance, and he realized that that's where Adam and Eve was buried, and he spent his days worshiping and praying at that cave. So when he bought the cave, he had the heart of David, who later would buy the threshing floor in which to build a temple, and the person wanted to give the king the threshing floor, and the king said, no, I will never give to God something that costs me nothing. Which is an interesting concept that really goes against the whole idea of the, the grace message. Because we want to give to God our service that Mashiach paid for, but we're not supposed to do anything at all, so therefore we're really giving God something that has cost us nothing. Which is exactly the opposite of what King David did and the exact opposite of what Abraham did. Abraham did not want to accept the cave as a gift, and Ephraim didn't really want to give it. That's why he said, oh, come on, take it. What's 400 pieces of silver? That's my price. <laughs> and so he bought the land for two reasons. First of all, he didn't want to bury his wife in something that didn't cost him anything. And secondly, that was the first time that a Jew had legal, documented, title, possession of property in Eretz Israel. But a lot of times we want the Messiah to pay for our, our life, which he does, but then we don't want to do anything, so therefore our service is really giving to God something that we didn't, we, it didn't cost us anything. It's always easier to give away somebody else's money. true. That's why when you look at the, uh, the personal tax return of, of Democrat politicians, no, it's true. It's true. Their personal giving is tiny, little bitty, little bitty, bitty, bitty. Because why? They're giving away your money. That's much easier. It's much easier. It's much easier to, to bless somebody. Honey, do you need, do you need your rent paid for? Yes, I do. I'm going to go rob a bank and pay your rent. <laughs> That's my gift to you. Anyway, it's called theft. <laughs> Sarah's life was 120 years. What happened to Sarah? How did she die? It says the Akedah was the cause of Sarah's, de Sarah's death. Now, there's a couple of ways that, are, that, that the sages explain this. One way is that Hasatan came to her and said that your son has been offered. And that shock caused her to die because she loved him so much. And uh, she was, of course, grieved. And the, there's another point of view that says that, in fact, she was told that he wasn't offered. And that caused her the shock that led to her death. Because she was concerned there was something wrong with him. That this son that she thought was so righteous maybe in fact wasn't righteous. Nevertheless, the sages bring down that even though this was the cause of her death, Sarah was an incredibly righteous woman. She was actually far more righteous than Abraham. And she lived out her full life's term. It's just that Hashem allowed this incident to happen, which would be the cause of her death. There's another insight here. It says, we find that King David asked God to tell him how long he would live. God said to King David, or as, or as King David wrote rather, Oh God, let me know my end. What is the measure of my days? In Psalm 39, 5. I have long ago decreed, replied God, that no human being 
shall know when he will die. But I will tell you one thing. You will die on the Sabbath. And so King David said, I would much rather die on a Sunday. Then people would be able to honor me and eulogize me. If I die on a Shabbat, people will not even be allowed to touch my body. Meaning, they won't be allowed to even prepare my body for burial. It says, I, would, I will have to be buried immediately, even without a eulogy. So let me get this straight. King David died on a Shabbat, and no one was allowed to prepare his body or even eulogize him. They just had to quickly put him into the grave, and that was it. No, see, y'all haven't quite connected it yet. That's how the David died, and so the son of David, exactly what happened to him. So it says, it is impossible, God said, by Sunday, it will already be the time for your son Solomon to be king. One reign cannot even take a hairbreadth from the other. Okay, with what I just read, this is why Yeshua was raised on a Sunday. Yeshua was raised on the first day of the week, not because the first day of the week was some kind of holy day. No. He was raised on the first day of the week because Solomon, the new king who would sit on the throne in place of his father David, was scheduled by heaven to become king on the first day of the week. And the old king cannot take even a hair's breadth of time away from the new king. So when the king of Israel, Mashiach ben Yosef, when that kingdom ended... He needed to be resurrected on the first day of the week so that Mashiach ben David would begin his reign because Yosef could not take a hair's breadth away from David with respect to the two Mashiachs. This is why he was raised on a Sunday. Ma'am Loez brings down another insight here. It says that Sarah did not live out her allotted time. This is another opinion. Sarah had given Abraham permission to marry her slave, Hagar, but after the marriage, Hagar became proud and began to despise Sarah. Sarah became angry at Abraham and said, because you know, this is how marriage works. It's his Abraham's fault. It was Sarah's plan and Abraham's fault. Hey, 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 Sarah became angry at Abraham and said, let God judge between me and you. <laughs> See, the women are laughing because they're like, Sarah, we got you. We know. That's good, Sarah. So Sarah said, let God judge between me and you. This was considered a misdeed by Shemayim. The Academy of Shem and Eber maintained a court of justice, and she should have taken her husband to decide Hagar's fate in court rather than merely berating him. Okay? So it says here, Therefore there is a rule that if a person prays for another and needs the same thing, he's answered first. The opposite is also true. If a person curses another and seeks divine justice, his words can be heard on high. Even if he's a good person, he is punished before the one is cursed. If a person seeks divine retribution against another, he will not escape great evil. If one has the audacity to ask God to judge somebody else, the record of his deeds is carefully examined and all of his sins are recalled. This is why Mashiach says, don't judge, lest you be judged. There's nothing new in the New Testament. This is a Jewish idea that he is confirming. This is why the sages bring down that if you want your sins forgiven, then forgive the wrong that was done to you. Don't hold anything against anybody else. This is why when we pray the bread time Shema, we say, let no man be judged because of me. In a way... Not to take away from the beauty of that prayer, but in a way, it's a bit of a selfish prayer. 
in a way. I don't mean it's entirely selfish, but, but what I mean by that is that when we say, let no man be judged of me, what we really were saying is, God, I don't want to be judged by Shemaim, and I know I need a lot of forgiveness. I know, Lord knows, you know I need forgiveness. So how in the world am I going to look at anybody else and say, you owe me some? Are you kidding? This is the parable that Yeshua taught and, 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 and to Cain and the Talmudim and said that, look, somebody was forgiven a debt, a great debt, and then after he was forgiven, he went out and found one of his servants who owed him a little bit, and that one who had been forgiven the great debt had the servant who owed him a little bit thrown in jail, and the master said, brought him back in and said, wait, did I not forgive your debt? And you can't forgive? Somebody's little debt, which teaches us another valuable lesson, that whatever somebody has done to us, we must consider it as nothing compared to what we've done to God. You say, no, Rabbi, they really abused me. No, Rabbi, they really hurt me. No, Rabbi, they really, they really betrayed me. That is nothing compared to what we have done to Hashem. That's how we have to view it. So that when people do things against us, and listen, what I'm talking about right now is not easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it. But what I'm talking about right now is the reality is that if we want to be forgiven, we have to be people who are willing to forgive. Now, there's a whole discussion here. And Ma'am Luez, he's talking about the life of Sarah. He's talking about um, Sarah being buried and so on. And he goes into a big important discussion about mourning and how to mourn properly and why we need to mourn. Um, it's very, very critical. By the way, before I do, I have two more things I want to share, though, before I get to that point I just remembered. The first comes from the uh, notes in the Midrash Shabbat. And I just want to point this out because when I read it, I said, this is why, this is why the passion, the, the so-called passion of Christ is depicted with such sorrow. You know, one time, um, this has been a number of years ago, but I was invited to a large Baptist church to uh, give a, basically like a teaching Seder, like a teaching thing on, on the Seder. We kind of went through it, taught about the elements and so on. There was four or 500 people there. And... It was on, it was, it was taking place uh, what was normally their Monday, Thursday uh, night, which um, when I was in that universe, um, we didn't do Monday, Thursday. I had no idea what that was. We didn't do that, which is interesting because uh, Christianity, I don't care if you're Protestant, I don't care if you're Baptist, Pentecostal, or... Uh, Whatever you are, your root is Rome. And so what happened is, is that uh, Rome is home for you. And so what has happened recently is, is because I, I don't think Monday, Thursday was a thing in the Baptist church. Rebbe Singh would know because that was kind of her roots way back, you know. Um, but anyway, it is now. Because what's happened in the recent last 20 years is a lot of the old Roman Catholic stuff has made it way, ways back into the Protestant world. It's true. So anyway, um, I didn't know we was there on Monday, Monday Thursday. And, and we brought the band. Hillel was there. Hillel and the Shushanites were there. And uh, there were some women dancing. I'm pretty sure that the Pharisees were there. And... Uh, it was joyful, and we was crazy. We were throwing tackles everywhere, and it was crazy. We were just having a good time. And uh, afterwards, the pastor came up to me, and he enjoyed it, and he thought it was exciting. He thought the information was great, but he was a little concerned. He had a little bit of concern look on his face. He says, you know, I don't think our people really expected this because typically Monday, Thursday is like real somber. And I said, really? And he explained to me why, because, you know, that was like, you know, the beginning of the passion and all this kind of stuff. And I, and I looked at him with, in all innocence. I said, well, why is it somber? I mean, he was going to be crucified so that we could be forgiven and resurrected from the dead. So why are we, why are we sad? <laughs> and he kind of looked at me like, you need Jesus. That's, that's, what, that's what he was thinking. 
That's what he was thinking. That's what he was thinking. So it says, Hameor Sheba Torah offered an answer that carries a powerful message. Hasatan, cursed be he, went to great lengths to prevent the Akedah from happening. So the question is, why would Hasatan even bother with Sarah? Since it already happened, the Akedah already happened, the effect has already uh, uh, taken place, why would he bother messing with Sarah? And it says here that he went to great lengths to keep the Akedah from happening at all. For he knew how great an act it was. And that tremendous merit would accrue to Abraham and his descendants as a result of the Akedah. However, or excuse me, although he was unsuccessful in preventing the Akedah, Hasatan, cursed be he, still sought to undermine, he still sought to undermine the quality of Abraham's sacrifice and thus diminish the reward. So the question becomes, how was he trying to undermine it and diminish its quality? And this is how. It says, um, to this end, Hasatan Kirsby attempted to have Abraham, after the fact, regret his role in the Akedah. Hasatan Kirsby killed Sarah through the news of the Akedah so that Abraham would think that he, by performing the Akedah, was responsible for Sarah's death. Abraham and Isaac went to the Akedah in a state of joy. They were happy to perform the mitzvah because they knew even if, he was, even if Isaac was to literally die, they knew that that was only because God wanted to bring the world back to Ganadin, and they were willing and happy and excited to bring that to pass. Which, as it points out here, is the ultimate way in which a mitzvah must, must be performed. A mitzvah must be performed with joy. If you perform a mitzvah with sorrow or with trepidation, then you... you you reduce, to a great extent, the reward for the mitzvah. So Hasatan, cursed be he, wanted to sully the joy by causing Abraham to regret his previous action. So why is it that the enemy has orchestrated this Monday, Thursday, Passion of the Christ, depressing, we got to be sad, and on, on Good Friday, we're just like, just, just, you know, just ready to string ourselves up. We're so depressed. Why? Because he wants to suck the joy out of the crucifixion so that we will not experience the full effect of the mitzvah. Which is why the apostles never wore a cross around their neck. Because their focus was never on the death. Their focus was always on the life. Which is why this is called Haye Sarah, not the death of Sarah. It's the life of the Mashiach, not the death of the Mashiach. Which is what mourning is all about. Mourning is about celebrating the life. Mourning is about being sorrow, sorrowful that the person is no longer alive because their benefit to us is no longer accessible. It says here, Ma'am Loez brings out, I just want to share a few of these insights in the hour and a half we have remaining. Might as well, because everybody else is at home. <laughs> Relaxing. Says the Torah statement that Abraham arrived to eulogize Sarah and to weep for her appears to be redundant. Since Abraham did not hate Sarah, obviously. What is it? What's so unusual about this? Should he be happy that he, she died? Of course not. Obviously he was grieved, especially since she had suffered so much for Isaac and had not lived to see him marry and give her grandchildren. He also had reason to sorrow because he was not present when she died. For this alone, it would have been natural for him to weep. With this, the Torah teaches us how important it is to mourn a good person and to eulogize him. When a person sheds a tear for the dead of a, of a virtuous individual, God counts it and places it in his treasury. The person is then aptly rewarded for it. 
Every good Jew, Ma'am Louise writes here, every good Jew should therefore strive to keep this precept. When one hears that a good person has died, even if he doesn't know the person, he must realize that since the deceased was virtuous, he brought good to the world. One must therefore grieve his death and honor him. This is especially true when the person who died was a Torah scholar. One must grieve for his loss, eulogize him, and mourn him. You ever, some of you who are, well, my age and older, will know that whenever you see a, a funeral procession drive by, you're supposed to stop. There actually was a custom that if you were in your car, you were supposed to actually stop and get out of the car. Sometimes you see this because in my profession, I have been involved in many funerals, led them and so on. Sometimes you'll see where people who are maybe, you know, a gentleman may be uh, uh, weed-eating. I saw this happen one time. He was weed-eating. He saw our procession coming, and he stopped, turned off his weed-eater, took off his hat, and stood there while the whole procession went by. This is what you're supposed to do. This is why people stop. And some people think it's inconvenient. It's like, oh, here's a funeral procession. But this is actually where this comes from. It comes from the, the Jewish way of honoring people you don't even know. But you know that their life was precious. So therefore, for we pay respect. It says, one should also mourn when a saint dies. Although the saint is actually going to a higher level of existence, and for him there's no loss, the survivor suffers the loss. Now, with this, I want to say something that could try to bring balance. I know in a lot of times when somebody passes away, some people will say, listen, I don't want to have a sad occasion. Let's not have a sad occasion. Let's have a celebration of life. I understand that sentiment. But you have to be careful with that because it, that suppresses the in, inert human need to cry and to mourn. And it's very often not healthy. Some people say, I don't want to go to a sad funeral. I want to go to a happy funeral and just, and just jump and dance and celebrate. Life. I understand what you're saying, but you have to be careful because that's not healthy. Because the person has gone to a better place. Absolutely. I guarantee you that if you were able to call their soul back, which you can't do because that would be necromancy, but if you were able to call their soul back, they were like, oh, please come home. They're like, huh, Why? And we need to cry and we need to express our sorrow because we are at the loss. So I just want to encourage everybody, don't, don't be af- afraid to mourn at a funeral. You're supposed to. You're supposed to. And it's healthy for you. And, it's, and those tears are counted in heaven as great treasure. A diamond remains a diamond whenever, wherever it is. Still, its owner grieves its loss. One must therefore mourn the death of a saint since those who remain have lost someone who could intercede for them. It says here, when a sage dies, there's no one who can replace him. Everybody has a unique mission. When you or I pass away, whenever that is, no one can truly replace us. Everybody has a unique mission, a unique gift. And we need to mourn that gift. Or mourn the, yeah, mourn the loss of that gift. It says, true, the Talmud teaches that a saint does not die until a replacement is born. That comes from the Talmud, that God never takes away a righteous, saintly uh, person unless there's somebody who is born to replace him, and there's a whole dialogue about that. However, this points out, Who's to say that that person who's born is is born in the same area? Perhaps someone passes away who's a great saint in Israel and the person who's born to replace him is born in Texas or France. The community still mourns a loss because that has ceased to be for them. It It goes on to say, besides the saint who was born cannot totally replace the one who has died, the world is steadily going downhill. The difference between one generation and the next is very great. This is why we mourn. The fact of the matter is, death is a part of life. That's what Hayesera is really teaching us. 
as great as a woman as Sarah was, she eventually passed away. And so did Abraham. In fact, everyone who's ever lived has died. And everyone who's ever lived before us will also die. We all share in that together. It says, furthermore, the new saint may not be born in the same place. I talked about that. Even if the new saint is equal to the former and born in the same place, it may take many years before he matures and reaches the full measure of his power. In the interim, the people lack a protector. When we mourn a saint or sage, we do not mourn the fact that he died, but rather the fact that we ourselves have lost the benefit conferred upon us. While alive, he taught the people Torah and encouraged them to do good and avoid sin. He can also intercede on high for his contemporaries. When he dies, all is lost and the world remains desolate until the new saint has matured. It is therefore proper to mourn the saint who passed away. By the way, this kind of negates the whole reincarnation idea. Once the saint is gone, he's gone. That's it. The main point of teshuva, what's the main point of eulogizing to begin with? And, and, and I said a, a, a second ago that it may rub people the wrong way because it's very, very common for people to say, I want to have a funeral service that's, that's not sad but, but just upbeat and happy. One of, the, one of the problems with that is that the main point of having a morning service of having a eulogy, the main point is to stir our hearts to make teshuva. As it says here, the main point is to arouse people's sleeping hearts to make them improve their ways. This is why the wisest of all men who ever lived is King Solomon. And King Solomon said, better is the house of mourning than the house of frivolity. Nobody likes to go to a place of mourning, but it's better to go to a place of mourning than a place of frivolity because that's the end of all men. The end of all men. Now, there's a wonderful par parable here I want to share with you. It's kind of long, but you'll enjoy it. The parable of the general. It says, There was once a great king who ruled over many kingdoms among his territories. There was a distant city which, has, which was his hometown. In that city, there was a great general who had been undefeated in battle. Now, once a number of kings marched on the city, planning to take it and conquer it. And hearing the news, the citizens sent an urgent message to the king, pleading that he send a large army to defend them from their attackers. They wrote, Although we have this great general who has never lost a battle, there is now an alliance of many kings marching to attack us. This battle is not like the ones we've experienced before. They wanted the king to come. Now, as soon as he read the message, the king sent men to the city with orders to bring that great general back to his palace. And when people heard that the general had been taken away and kept in the king's palace, they were aghast. And they said, not only did the king not send reinforcements, but he even took away our general. He left us to suffer, and we will certainly be wiped out. How could he be so cruel to his own hometown to take away a general like that? They tried to fathom the king's intent, but were totally at a loss. Finally, the citizens asked an old sage who had a reputation for great intelligence, and they said, and he said rather, I am sure that the king did not want to see you destroyed. He always shows affection and concern for you. He knows that you're all good fighters better than anyone in the world. The only trouble is that you're too lazy to take the initiative in battle yourself. You only want to eat and to drink and go from one festival to another. You therefore do not take the trouble to train yourselves properly for war. You depend completely on the brilliant strategy of your general. You are so dependent on his skill, on his works, on what he did, on his efforts, that you've totally forgotten the art of war. Seeing that all his enemies are marching to attack you, the king did not the most intelligent thing possible. If he had left the battle to your general, you certainly would have been killed. Without any good army behind him, the skill of a general is no avail against a powerful enemy. If he were here, you would leave everything up to him. The king therefore did the best thing possible in order, and that was to take the general away. 
Now you will have to take the initiative in battle. If you put out the right effort, you can be assured of victory. Although you are outnumbered, you are much better fighters. Hearing this, the people were heartened. They began to train themselves and develop a battle strategy, and they were able to emerge victorious when the enemy arrived. And they realized then that they were wrong to have feared their attackers and equally wrong to have been overly dependent upon their general. So it says here the king represents God, the faraway city, the physical world, which is very far from the heavens. And the general is the sage or the saint or the zodic who is alive at the time. And isn't this how we have become sometimes? We depend so much on the merit of the Mashiach that we don't spend any time preparing ourselves to wage war against the evil inclination, against the world. And God is saying to us, we have a general, but you need to be a trained fighter. You need to learn what it means to fight and to practice the art of war. Unfortunately, the grace messages have made us kind of spiritual wimps. It says, even if they sin, they feel secure. They assume that the saint will intercede for them, for they see that he fasts and studies Torah day and night. This can go so far that they abandon Judaism and forget God's ways. This is talking about people that put too much, too much hope in their, their rabbis or too much hope in their sages, too much hope in the Zodic. Even if they sin, they're like, ah, it's okay for me to send the rabbis praying. Ah, it's okay for me to send the Zodic is there. And it goes so far that they eventually forget Judaism and no longer walk in the path of Torah. Has that happened? I don't know. Maybe it's happened a couple times. A couple more insights here. It says here that a blameless saint should never actually die. The only reason they die is because of the sins of his generation. Let me read that again because y'all were asleep. Too much antibacterial soap. It says a blameless saint should never die. The only reason he dies is because of the sins of his generation. When the people repent on Yom Kippur, it atones for their sins. The death of a saint, too, atones for the inadvertent sins when a person repents, just like a sin offering. The archangel Michael, who oversees Israel, accepts the souls of the saint and the soul of the saint, and offers it as a sacrifice on the altar in heaven. Now, agree or disagree with that is, frankly, irrelevant. What's relevant is that that precedent exists. That A, a saint can die because of the sins of the generation, and B, that a saint can be a sin offering. To the extent that his very soul can be offered on the spiritual altar in heaven. Which is exactly what we say about Yeshua, that it was our sins that killed him and that his soul became a sin offering sacrifice for us. That is precisely in line with Jewish teaching. It says this is true not only in the Holy Land, but wherever a saint dies, he atones for the sins of his generation. This is true of any blameless person who is pure of sin. His death is like a sacrifice. The only condition is that he have no spiritual blemishes since a blemish renders him as an offering unfit for the altar. Now, the Mashiach is the Zadok of all Zadokim. So our contention is that not only does he make atonement for his generation, he makes atonement for all generations, past, present, and future even the generations that were intended to come into the world but did not actually come into the world. It goes on to say here that a saint is like the soul of the body, the body being the people. Have you ever heard the idea that we are the body of the Mashiach? The Mashiach is our sadik, therefore he is our soul, as it's saying here. Now why does Mashiach live? Why was it necessary for him to die but then be immediately resurrected? Why? Here's the answer. 
As long as there is a saint alive in the world, the attribute of justice has no power and no evil comes to the world. His merit protects his generation. But when people ignore the Torah and deserve to be punished, providence takes away the saint and God then wreaks vengeance upon the wicked as they deserve. The saint dies so that he will not witness this evil. Mashiach lives, and in his living, he makes intercession for us, and in his interceding, he keeps evil from overtaking us. That's why San Francisco is not destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's why. Sometimes the death of a saint is for our benefit, it says here, because when a saint dies, we realize how big of a sinner we are, and it leads us to make teshuva. Obviously, however, a saint's death, it says here, does not atone unless people repent. If people are unmoved by the tragedy and say that it's nothing more than a natural event, then it's totally ineffective. No matter how old the saint is, we have to say, I don't care if he's 105. We have to mourn his death because something precious has been lost. One more, one more, one more thing here. We'll be, we'll be done. So much more to say, but by the way, who was a saint or exotic? Not necessarily an extraordinary person, but just somebody who devotes himself or herself to God's will and does their utmost to avoid sin, it says here, and tries to keep all the commandments that pertain to him and deals honestly in business, doesn't mislead others, pays his debt on time, and does not harm for his own gain. So there was a scholar one time who practiced the studying of the track of Hagiga, which the word Hagiga means a festival offering. Because he did not know anything else in the Talmud, he reviewed this over and over and over again. That's what he studied all the time. All his life he studied this track until he knew it perfectly by heart. When he died, he was old and alone. And no one even knew that he had passed away. Suddenly, a woman appeared in his room and began to mourn him. She cried in a loud voice until she had attracted the neighbors. The woman said to them, mourn for him, bewail him, and honor him. For this man was indeed a saint who will, in fact, be welcomed with open arms in the Alam Haba. This saint honored me very much. He never took his mind away from me. The woman, or the woman accompanied the scholar until he was buried. And after the funeral, the people asked her name, to which she replied, my name is Hagiga. When they returned from the cemetery, the woman vanished and was never seen again. And people then realized that the woman was none other than the spirit of the tract of Hagiga. And they understood that this scholar must have been such a great saint for providence to have brought about such a phenomenon to publicize his greatness. The reason I read that story is because our contention is, is the Mashiach is the scripture manifest. And here it says that a tractate of Talmud, Hagiga, manifest in the form of a woman. And if Hagiga can manifest in the form of a woman and come forth and her name is Hagiga, how much more can the Torah manifest in the form of a man whose name was Yeshua? Baruch haba b'shem Adonai.